It's a delightful privilege that we have today. It has already been mentioned in the opening announcements and the thought of the smiles that we're able to wear by virtue of God's blessings upon us physically. And certainly, as we've already mentioned in prayer and by way of song, the marvelous wonder of the blessings that we also enjoy spiritually. The opportunity of forgiveness, the character of being able to carry on a relationship with our elder brother, the Christ, and the opportunity of the hope that abides within us, appreciating the grandeur and the realization of it, spoken of in 1 Peter 1. As we gather together this morning for this portion of the service, as we turn our attention to the Word of God for a few moments, I would like to ask you to notice the opening lesson of a series of lessons or sermons on the subject of the Bible as it approaches the topic of gender, male and female, if you will. In fact, as you perhaps can see on the wall, as well as was announced in the bulletin, this is the first installment of that series of lessons, and I would invite your attention with me first in some introductory thoughts, and then in an especial consideration of the dignity that associates in the first matter of this series of lessons. In Numbers 23, verse 23, we find this statement, What hath God wrought? And in the King James translation, it is an exclamation mark that follows it, reminding us that on that occasion with Balaam, the thing to which he referred was a great matter in his heart. He had a thought about how great God is and what God has been able to accomplish in the character of the human family. Isn't it true that you and I, as we look about us and experience the world, there are some things that are a natural part of what God has made, and humankind is powerless to change it. He is powerless to alter it. He is powerless in any way to modify it. I might submit to you that one of those matters is the character of male and female. It was in the divine providence of the God of heaven. He selected and chose that there would be two genders or two sexes, if you please, in the human family. And no matter how man may try, he has been unable and shall remain unable to change that given viewpoint and that fact that characterizes the universe in which we live. I would invite your consideration with me as we ponder that because that very fabric of male and female not only is by virtue of observation, it's also apparent in the Word of God a very character of the way he made things and the orchestration of the way he intends certain things still to be done. As we ponder what those things are and how they're to be done, isn't it also interesting that there have been various movements throughout the history of time that have brought a change in viewpoint with respect to some of these things. In the 1970s, for example, there was the ERA movement there was the various other movements that have in some way indirectly also taken place since then. Whether it be the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, or this present decade, or whether it be several hundred years in the past, we know the Word of God as prescribed in the New Testament has been and shall remain the standard of authority in the New Testament era. And so one of our goals will certainly be, what does the Bible say about this? In what way does it present it? And this opening lesson will be surrounding the topic of the dignity that God has associated to the genders that he has fashioned and that he has made. With those introductory thoughts made, might we turn our attention then to look at the next installment or section in our lesson, 
And let's look at the following notes, if you would. I think it very fair to impress upon our minds, first of all, the divine origin of the gender that you and I are able to appreciate. It is certainly the case that those who have a strong scientific consideration are quick to say that almost anything came about by some means by naturalistic blind processes and it just happened to be this way because it served the purposes of propagating the race. Now we ought to ask the question, is that what the Bible teaches concerning female and male? Did they come about that way? If they came about by some way other than that, what was it? We might have noted in the reading that Jason read a few moments ago. In fact, this story begins in the opening chapter of God's book, doesn't it? In Genesis chapter number 1, we well remember that first of all, even with respect to the animal kingdom on day number 5, the birds of the air, the fishes of the sea, God even said to them, be fruitful and multiply, implying the male and female characteristic permitting procreation in the animal kingdom. But of course, our primary focus is on the human order of things. The very next day, day number six, with the land animals fashioned and made, we find in verse number 26 the amazing statement, wherein God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. There God specifically affirmed that with respect to this which he was now making, it bore his own image and it bore a likeness to him in some fashion and in some way. And that lifts the character of Adam, that one that he made on that occasion, to the highest of orders. It was the zenith to that point of what he had fashioned. Nothing on days one through five compared to this because he was made in God's image. But isn't it amazing too as one considers that statement? that that wasn't the end of the human order, was it? For as we read chapter 2, we learn that some additional details were given with respect to that matter of creation because God saw that something wasn't perfect in regard to Adam. In verse 18, it says, It is not good that the man should be alone. God on that occasion and at that moment took the initiative, didn't he? He said, I will make and help me for him. But we never forget the thrust of that pronoun I. This matter that was to fulfill that lacking point, that imperfect character of this environment in which Adam found himself, God was going to fix it. He brought a deep sleep upon Adam and from his side he took a rib and of that rib he fashioned a woman. And he brought her unto him. As we look at the summary statement of that in Genesis 1, verse 27, might we notice the statement that's therein made. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. That closing word in the verse is plural, isn't it? Male and female created he them. That statement was a summary or synopsis of the entirety of the human creation, both Adam and Eve. And as we appreciate that character, that lovely description, that in the image of God made he them, might we notice some comments and remarks that I'd like us to make about it. We learn from that that both the man and the woman then were made in the image of God. They bore his image and they bore his likeness. 
That means they both had a tremendous character of what God had implanted within them. They were not animals. The highest animal is far beneath either one of these creatures that God had fashioned. Special indeed they were. So special that the remainder of God's book will cast the spotlight primarily on them and their duties, their responsibilities, and their obligations not only to one another, but unto the God who made them. The character of that description and the beauty of it goes on in verse 31 of this opening chapter in which we read this interesting statement. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. At this point, though he first of all had asserted that something wasn't perfect with regard to Adam's environment, with the woman now fashioned, created, and brought to him, everything that he had made was good. In fact, very good. It's an amazing realization, isn't it, then, that in the opening couple of chapters of the Bible, we have the fabric, the interesting character of female and male already woven into God's environment, into the universe, into the world that he's fashioned and that he's made. Those observations lead us again to summarize by saying the fact of female and male is God's doing. It is not human invention. It was, in fact, nothing related to what God chose or what man chose to prescribe. That was God's idea. I think that alone says a great deal about the dignity that accords to male as well as female, for that is the order and the way in which God fashioned and made them. But might we also look more carefully at the additional features of some of the dignity that accords to what God has made. On this next slide, I have especially entitled it, The Dignity of Gender. We hinted it already at the nature of God's fashioning of it, the fact that he has made it. Let's look at various passages in the Bible that highlight the special dignity accorded to both men and to women and to appreciate that it was the design of the great God of heaven to have individuals upon earth that would walk in accordance to the dignity that he invested in them. Perhaps we can begin by looking at just a few ideas concerning the male species, the, the male gender, if you will. We well remember on many occasions throughout both the Old and New Testament, men were granted the opportunity to occupy very special positions understood with great dignity. For example, I've listed just a few those patriarchs of the Old Testament era, those men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who in fact the New Testament will refer to and quote as walking with God and occupying a very impressive position in that patriarchal era of time, they of course were men. They were males. And one could list a host of others like Noah and like Enoch and like even Joseph and others in that early period of time outlined for us in the book of Genesis. But as we come to the time of Moses and beyond, who about who could we refer to with regard to the judges? Fifteen of them are listed in the Bible. Fourteen of them were male. That helps us see that God had a responsibility and a plan in mind for them to occupy in their leadership of the people and in their relationship of guiding others to him. Well, what about the prophets as well as the kings of the Old Testament? 
almost without exception, the kings were male. There was one female king, I suppose I should call her a queen, but as she usurped the throne, she did so without godly authority on that occasion. And we should recognize that she very soon met her rather atrocious death because of it. But in addition, what about the prophets of Old Testament lore? We will remember that by and large they too occupied the male gender, didn't they? Men like Isaiah, all the way to Malachi. And there were some others who did not write books in the Old Testament. Those too, such as Elijah and Elisha, were they not males? We can notice that God had tasks and responsibilities for them. There were obligations that they were to live up to. But just as surely as we look at the Old Testament, what about the New Testament in its appreciation of the same? The Lord chose 12 apostles and they were males. We will remember the Apostle Paul and others who were his associates like Timothy and like Luke. They too were males, weren't they? They had obligations, responsibilities, and God presented warnings to them. Certain things he did not want them to do, and many other things he commanded them to do. I might ask each of us to notice then in passing that it's significant that even the members of the Godhead, without exception, are referred to with male pronouns. God, when used in terms of a pronoun, he's called he. And the same is true of Christ, and the same is true of the Holy Spirit. All of them reference with male pronouns, aren't they? But just to say then that males are lift high in the Bible, and that they are given positions of honor and respect, might we also notice what does the Bible say about females, and the roles that they can occupy in the Holy Scriptures? It might be well to begin that brief comment with an excursion into the way women were viewed sometimes in the ancient world. In the antique world, women often did not fare quite as well as, as men. In fact, often they were looked upon as mere possessions. Quite from at least one time to another, they were denied somewhat basic human rights. If one looks in the annals, for instance, of the ancient Babylonians or the ancient Assyrians, the ancient Romans, or the Greeks, one finds especially in Assyria that women had very few, if any, real rights. They were in fact again looked upon as somewhat inferior. It is to be noted in regard to all of that that some of those thoughts seem to have even worked their way into the rabbinical teachings under the Old Testament. Let us, in fact, notice the very bottom statement, if you would. In the Old Testament era, as we look, say, beneath the law of Moses, we find that, at least from time to time, some of the noted rabbis under the Mosaic era did teach about the basic inferiority of women. And as they did that, it came to be considered by many of the Jewish males. In fact, I've listed one of the prayers, or at least a portion, a reference to one of the prayers that a typical Jewish male would utter. This would have been about the time of Christ. When a Jewish male arose in the morning, many of them would express thanksgiving to God for three things. One, that he was not a pagan. Two, that he was not a slave. And three, that he was not a woman. And inasmuch as one appreciates that kind of thinking that had come to prevail, we can begin to see that women were often looked upon in an insulting or often quite demeaning way. 
I would submit to you in regard to that thought that we might ask, did the Old Testament actually teach that? Or was this human tradition from pagan influence that came to bear in that regard? Perhaps only the Old Testament could answer that question. In fact, at the very top, I've tried to say that as you and I scrutinize the Old Testament books, we do not find that women were in fact presented in a demeaning or insulting fashion. In fact, I would ask you to notice that even from the time of the creation, when there it says God made both the man and the woman in his image, that lifted high at the outset the nature that this woman that he had fashioned also had very special characteristics. She was not an animal, just like Adam was not an animal. But that doesn't mean that there were not distinctions to be recognized amongst them. Perhaps God had different responsibilities to attach to each, different obligations that he expected of each one. And it is that that we would wish to discuss somewhat more fully as this series of lessons proceeds. But even at the outset, let's note some passages. In Exodus 20, beginning in verse 12, on the occasion when the law of Moses was given, God said, honor thy father. But he didn't stop there. He said, honor thy father and thy mother. She, you see, was to be honored just as dad was. There was a characteristic in which a child, a Jewish child, was to understand the dignity that accorded to mother as well. Later in Deuteronomy 5, verse 16, an almost identical statement is found reminding us of the important role of the woman inasmuch as she was a mother. In Leviticus 19, at the very outset of that chapter, do we not remember there where God through Moses said, Everyone shall fear his father and his mother. She too was to be highly respected, appreciated for not only bringing him or her into the world, but for that very special role of wife and mother that she occupied, we already begin to see that something very special is stated early on in the Old Testament, and it remains so. As late as Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, as well as chapter 6, verse 20, we well remember there that not only was the father to be respected in terms of the instruction that he imparted, the Proverbs writer said, Do not forsake the law of thy mother. That again lifts womanhood, motherhood especially, to very great heights, doesn't it? Jewish children were not to just ignore mom as if she was to be insulted, as if she were far, far removed from the position of father. Indeed, both were vital, both were significant, both were important. They were to be respected for those positions that God had given them to occupy. As we walk down the corridors of Old Testament history, we perhaps can be reminded of many occasions in which women graced the biblical stage. Can we not begin with Sarah? And think about her position as the wife of Abraham, and though she indeed made her mistakes, she is referenced in the New Testament in 1 Peter 3, verse 6, as a lady of faith who, in fact, can serve as an example of women today. When we come further along the biblical stage of time, there's Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, whom Abraham had, in fact, his servant to procure for his son. And what a great role she began to play as she gave birth to both Esau and to Jacob. 
In fact, Paul, by inspiration, refers to Rebecca in Romans chapter 9 and makes a statement about the degree of her characteristic in the bringing about of the godly nation. Can we not see that God, in his providential will, sometimes employed women in the carrying out of the things that he desired to come to pass? Beyond these two, might we not think of Jochebed, the mother of Moses, who, when she, in fact, gave birth to that boy, she did not put him to death as the commandment of the Pharaoh was, but, in fact, she watched over him, and unbeknownst to the Pharaoh, she, in fact, was selected as the one to nurse and guide and teach him. And as we proceed on, we could list Ruth, that beloved love story in which we see a lady, in fact, so devoted and determined she would not forsake her mother-in-law, but she not only went back with her, but adopted following the God of heaven. And ultimately, she was included in the very ancestry of our Lord. Well, what about Esther? That powerful queen who, upon usurpation of that throne, became the one who God would use to save his people and would, in fact, bring ultimately the Christ child into the world. You could think of many others, no doubt, who were important individuals in the Old Testament era. As these ladies occupied the positions listed that we've just discussed, can we not maybe close that slide by recollecting that description of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31? Beginning in verse 10, the question is asked, Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. And in the verses that follow, the inspired writer proceeds to describe the virtue associated with a godly woman. That person who her children will call blessed, her husband will look upon her with great appreciation and dignity and honor. It is an overwhelming thing to see the Old Testament then, much different than the pagan heathen world, did not look upon women nearly to the extent as being insulting or demeaning as, again, most societies did. But the Old Testament, in fact, lifted women to an appreciation she was made in the image of God, and she bore the very likeness of him. As we continue to think about those ideas, might we at least think about the New Testament as well? In the New Testament, I've listed some other features and some other thoughts that I think we should consider. Our Lord, you see, as well as the gospel, still has a great value to be placed on women, an honor to be associated with the female. In fact, notice with me just a few of the worthy women that adorned the New Testament stage. Could we not mention Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist? Here was a woman of whom it was said that, in fact, she lived blamelessly, devoted to the teachings of the Old Testament law of Moses, and she and her husband, Zechariah, then, were the blessed parents in older age of that one who was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. The one who was the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, John the Baptist. There's also Mary, the mother of Jesus. Here was a lady who we well remember was highly regarded, considered and handpicked by God to be the one to bring his son into the world. We can see often as she appears in the New Testament documents, that she appears to be a lady who was greatly a believer in the Old Testament law and who not only believed in that but had great consideration for the promise given to her concerning the son that she would bear. 
But in addition to Mary and in addition to Elizabeth, what about Mary Magdalene? And what about Lydia? And what about several others who also are mentioned, such as Lois and Eunice, the grandmother and mother even of the gentleman named Timothy? I hope in us briefly listing these individuals that we can consider that they had a great role to play in the lives of their children, in the lives of their husbands, the ones that were married, and in the character associated with how God could use them to bring about His will in the lives of people. We certainly should be very quick to say that as we've listed these worthy women, that's not to say that God had granted them the opportunity and the privilege of doing the same things that men could, for he often had distinct obligations for them, distinct roles that he expected them to occupy. And as we continue in our series of studies, we will want to highlight that distinction. I've listed some other things on that screen. Perhaps it was an oddity in that day, because quite often the character of the genealogy was reckoned through the man. And yet in Matthew chapter 1, Four women are listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Four of them. That alone is a significant mark to the importance that women can occupy and to the dignity that God associated with the female gender. I would submit furthermore to you that in the honor roll of faith of Hebrews chapter 11, there is more than one woman listed there. In addition to Sarah, there is also, of course, Rebecca, as well as some of them later in that list. You can see the Bible writers didn't just ignore women or pretend that they didn't exist, didn't in fact set them beneath the opportunity of serving in God's kingdom in some way. When it comes to salvation, in fact, is it not said, there's neither male nor female. Females are immortal spirits just like males are. They are in need of the gospel just like males are. They are in fact standing on equal level when it comes to the opportunity to go to heaven. They too need the gospel, need to respond in obedience, just like men. With all of that affirmed and said, would it not be fair to maybe conclude the lesson this morning with some of these remarks? Some highlights to draw our discussion to a close. First of all, can we not say that from the perspective of the Bible, there is no insult or no indignity to being a male? In fact, with regard to males, God has designed and prescribed various responsibilities he expects males to occupy. Gentlemen, there are things God expects of you that he does not expect of a woman. There are things that he demands of you that he, in fact, commands her not to do. As one looks at the distinction in those offices, notice it's no indignity to be a male. We should appreciate the blessing that accords to it and strive to live to the standard that God has described concerning it. But in the same way, ladies, females if you will, there's no insult or no indignity to being a woman. Just as surely as there are blessings associated with being a male, there are blessings associated with being a female. And just as surely as there are distinctions, there continue to be with regard to this. Ladies, there are things God expects of you that he does not expect of a male. In fact, there are things he demands of you that he commands men not to do just as surely as the vice versa was true of men. That distinction in roles is very important, and it's very vital. 
And we must seek to understand what God has to say on that set of distinctions so that we each can occupy our proper role and serve as instruments in God's kingdom, doing what he would have us to do to bring glory and honor unto him. Perhaps as you can see near the bottom part of that screen, as we begin this study of gender as it's presented in the Bible, Today we have begun it by highlighting these. First, the origin is with God. Secondly, we know that either, be it male or female, has the opportunity to appreciate the dignity by the virtue of God's creation that associates to those two positions. As we begin to look forward to the next lesson, it will in fact involve issues of that distinction I mentioned earlier. Inasmuch as there are distinctions in responsibility, distinctions in nature, what does the Bible say about that? Next Lord's Day morning, we'll continue our study, and we'll see what God has to say about that set of distinctions. And I think we'll discover that in many ways, humankind has desired to cloud those issues, to in fact extend the boundaries beyond at times where God placed them. We will again want to know where he placed them and strive to ever remain in the friendly confines and the safe confines of where he has put them. This morning, might we ask this rather noble question. Both male and female are in need of salvation. Both male and female need to be a Christian. You see, just being a man won't get anybody to heaven. Just being a woman won't get anybody to heaven. It needs to be a Christian man, a Christian woman. What about you this morning? Be you male or female? Are you serving the Lord in faith? Have you given your life to dedication to his cause, faithful following the things he has proclaimed concerning you and what he expects of you? If you never become a Christian, let today be the day. Today is the day of salvation, reads verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 6. Inasmuch as today, then let this day, the 14th of June 2009, be your spiritual birthday. If you have become a Christian by faith, by of course, repentance, by confession, by baptism, but you have not lived faithfully to that calling. Maybe you have allowed things concerning your gender to become a problem. Maybe you have allowed yourself to engage in things that peers or others have encouraged you to do that, quite frankly, were sinful. They were wrong, and others have known about it. You need to make a public statement so that others know about that error, your acknowledgement of it, and your desire to come back to a faithful relationship to God. If we could be of assistance by praying with you and for you, by or aiding you in your baptism, we'd be happy to do that today. Won't you let it be known if that's the desire of your heart while together we stand and while we sing?